This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Rob Snyder, and welcome to the New Books Network. Today, I'll be talking with geographer and writer Joshua Jelly Shapiro about his new book, Names of New York, Discovering the City's Past, Present, and Future Through Its Place Names, published by Pantheon. Josh has a sharp appreciation for place, history, and the stories we tell to give meaning to our lives. His book covers many topics, from how Europeans garbled Native American place names, to the story behind Dead Horse Bay, to why New Yorkers give so many streets honorary names. Before Names of New York, he wrote Island People, the Caribbean and the World, and created with Rebecca Solnit, Nonstop Metropolis, a New York City atlas. He's written for The New Yorker, The New York Review of Books, and Harper's, and is scholar-in-residence at the Institute for Public Knowledge at New York University. I'm Rob Snyder, Manhattan Borough historian, professor emeritus of American Studies and Journalism at Rutgers University, and an interviewer for the New Books Network. Welcome, Josh. Thanks, Rob. Pleasure to be here. Glad to have you. Tell us a little bit about your life before you became an author. Did you always have an interest in New York City? Yes. Well, certainly, I think I've always had a, an interest in New York. My um, my family history, like many American family histories, runs through New York, runs through Ellis Island. And I grew up mostly in the in the woods of Vermont, the mean streets of Montpelier, Vermont. So far from the city, but I always, you know, as a kid spent time uh, visiting uh, New York, always, you know, was there several times a year. My grandparents remained close by in Northern New Jersey. And uh, I'd always had a deep, uh, deep fascination with the city, the pull of the city. Um, and I think that also as a kid, I was just one of those kids. I think there are many of us, uh, humans who are just turned on by maps. I think I always loved atlases. I loved sort of pouring over uh, charts of places that I'd been and places I hadn't been but wanted to go. Uh, And so I think I've always been someone who's just been uh, fascinated by place, as you say, fascinated by the ways we represent place and and, uh, attach meaning to it. And New York City, I think my entire life, though I uh, wasn't wasn't born in the city, began spending time there at a young age, and now I've spent a lot of my adult life here. Um, and it's been a, a place that has given me so much and is just uh, uh, a huge part of my life now, both in terms of my, my scholarly work and my work as a writer, and in the ways that I now try and think about place and what it means and why it matters. You know, you've written a great book about the Caribbean island people, and you've co-authored a very creative atlas, Nonstop Metropolis. Could you say a little bit how each of those prepared you to write Names of New York? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, my book about the the Caribbean was really a kind of, you know, labor of love that really represented culmination of, of 20 years, really, of, of spending time in the islands and of being uh, fascinated by uh, both the history of, of the Caribbean and also just trying to give due credit to the ways in which this place that we think of as, as, as marginal to world history or just a place to go on vacation is in fact central to world history, that these islands uh, of the Caribbean, the, the Antilles, have exerted a pull you know, on, on the world's imagination. And they also belong, in my mind, at the center of any story we tell ourselves about the making of the modern world and its economy, because the Caribbean was the center, uh, in many ways, of the Atlantic slave trade for three centuries. Uh, so in any case, that book is a, is a book about that, about those facts, and about the incredible riches of the islands and uh, about the ways in which islands in particular, um, as I say, do exert a pull, I think, on, on human imaginations. Islands are utopias or they're, or they're prisons or they're paradises. Uh, they seem to, to exert a pull on us, as I say. Um, and then Nonstop Metropolis, uh, this atlas of New York City that I had the great pleasure of working on with Rebecca Solnit and a kind of merry band of contributors, a bunch of wonderful writers and, and sociologists and geographers and artists, uh, was the third in a series of these atlases that we worked on uh, about great American cities. The other two are San Francisco and, and New Orleans in that series. Um, and essentially what those books do and what the New York book did, Nonstop Metropolis, was to create a portrait of the city that's based in the idea that any city, any place, uh, could be mapped in an infinite number of ways, that any city contains an infinite number of stories and histories. And what we wanted to do in that book was just to gesture at some of those worlds and stories and sort of get people to think about the incredible layers of a place like New York, the ways in which a great city like New York is a, is a place of radical coexistence, as we like to put it, whether that's about the languages spoken in Queens or maps of the fires that burned the Bronx in the 70s or the Wu-Tang Clan's, you know, imaginative mapping of Staten Island, you know, any number of things. And I think that Names of New York, this new book, really grew out of that atlas in, in quite direct ways in the sense that you know, I spent several years just being immersed in the in the literature of New York and in the ways in which um, great scholars and writers and, and geographers before us had mapped the city. But of course, the, the great building block of any map or any any account of of a city like New York are its place names um, and place names we sometimes take for granted. But I've always as a geographer, I've been fascinated by where they come from, about how they shape our sense of place. And I think having spent years creating maps of the city, I thought, wow, I think it's time to do a, a, a little book on the place names themselves, where they come from, uh, what they do, why they matter, um, and thus names of New York. And here we are. You know, you write in your book, in place names lie stories. What are some of the most interesting stories that you found? In yes, well, New York, you know, any place... Um, is made up of, of sort of layers of people who've, who've left their mark on, on the map of, of the city. Um, and in New York, of course, you have these layers of the, the Dutch, the English, the Native Americans before them, and then everything that's sort of come, come since the colonial era uh, and since the American Revolution, that of course, is so central to the making of this city as an American city. Um, and so many of the stories that I sort of loved getting into 
were stories about how certain old names um, were essentially sort of riffed on by the people who came next to kind of create new names. And I think sometimes the the names that, that stick on the map are just about what sounds good. So, for example, you think about uh, Gramercy Park, right? It's uh, Gramercy sounds sort of vaguely English and, and sort of, uh, uh, as I say, kind of British. Um, but it's actually a riff on uh, an old Dutch name, right? The Crow Marsh, the, the Crooked Marsh that was in that part of Manhattan back in, in the days of New Amsterdam. And the English essentially just riffed on that Dutch name to create this thing, Gramercy. Um, and there it is on the map. Similarly, Coney Island, you know, that name meant something to the Dutch, Konin Island, right? Um, Island of Rabbits, but then became Coney Island to the English, which doesn't mean anything to us or doesn't mean rabbits anyway. It means Ferris wheels and cotton candy and, and all the things that we associate with Coney Island. But I've always been fascinated by by the ways in which right sort of sound becomes determinative of what of what names stick when different people take over a place. But I'll give you another one I, I love is um you know looking into the origins of of well Great Jones Street in Lower Manhattan, which was uh, is there to distinguish between it and Little Jones Street. Once upon a time, no longer there. Uh, but in any case, I love learning. Uh, for example, that the the term jonesing, the expression jonesing, uh, comes from once upon a time a few decades ago when uh, addicts were said to haunt Great Jones Street looking to score. Uh, and so the term jonesing comes from, mm. comes from that. And there are innumerable examples like that of the ways in which a place name can kind of give birth to an idiomatic expression and, and, uh, and then sort of become a part of, of the language in that way. Um, it was fascinating to me. How does politics shape which place names removed and which places get to stay? Yeah, great. I mean, great question. I think to write a book about place names uh, is necessarily to to think about politics and to think about power. You know, the power to name a place is an extraordinary power. Um, you know, and there's a reason why so many maps come to us from uh you know, colonial eras or colonial processes of people claiming a place by mapping it. Um, and so the power to name is, is an extraordinary one. Um, I think that one of the things that I wanted to, to look at in this book and was sort of fascinated to learn more about are the ways in which, for example, uh, many, you know, Native American place names ended up uh, on our maps of New York. Uh, and there are many, more than I think most people realize. Of course, most people know that Manhattan comes from the Lenape word uh, or a Lenape word. We're not sure exactly which one, uh, but that they, uh, the native peoples in this in this area called the island Manahatta, or at least a part of it Manahatta. But there are so many others. You know, there's Hackensack and Hoboken and Passaic over in New Jersey. And in Brooklyn, we have Canarsie and we have Rockaway and, and Gowanus. Um, all of these are Native American place names. And one of the things I loved about this book was sort of looking into how those took up resonance on, on old maps and remain on ours. And of course, part of the story there is it's about these European settlers sort of hearing uh, Native Americans they encountered, the Lenape people mostly, um, expressing these words and then and then these Dutch and English settlers sort of putting them on their maps. But it's not always the case that those those words were actually used as place names by um, the Lenape. Some of them were, right? Um, some of them were not. 
Uh, some of them are the names of, of sachems that, uh, that negotiated land deals at the time. Um, but in any case, it's, it's fascinating to look at the ways in which power um, shapes what names uh, remain, which name, who has the power to name, um, and why. And that, of course, continues uh, to the present day. Um, and digging into those histories in particular of Native Americans and sort of the fashion for adopting Native American place names, even as uh, the people who coined them were being pushed off the land is a, is a real remarkable strain in, in the history of American place names. You know, we have 26 states, right, that, uh, that evoke or, or, uh, or are borrowed from Native American languages. And that's a, that's a remarkable fact in a country that is founded in certain ways, as we all know, on, on the genocide uh, of the people who lived on this continent before Europeans came. I was struck by how the American Revolution erased whole place names in New York City. Absolutely. No, and, and Rob, as you know, as, as the author of a, of a great book about Washington Heights and, the, and a native son of, of, of that neighborhood, uh, you know, Washington, George Washington's name, of course, is all over New York and it's all over it's all over America. It's over the world, for that matter. There are Washington streets all over the place and, and boulevards and mountains. Um, but as you say, the imprint that the American Revolution left on New York was was profound um, politically, obviously, but in terms of place names. And most obviously, uh, because of the heroes of that war, not only Washington, but you know all the all these streets of of Soho and of and of Brooklyn that are named for heroes of the war, from Green to Sullivan to Thompson to McDougal. You know all of these all of these names, though most people don't know it. You know are, are heroes of of the war, but also I was I was fascinated, and this was stuff I really didn't know before researching the the book that in those early decades of the United States, the ways in which. Uh, People in New York and across the country, of course, but but here notably, uh, went about trying to make our map and our streets less British, right? Less sort of identified with the colonial power that had just been been defeated and tossed off. Um, and so, of course, that took the form of getting rid of you know George Street's references to to King George or or to Queen. Uh, we still have Prince Street, but there were a bunch more uh, streets, right? That uh, evoked the royals, the British royals, but also really fascinatingly, I think, at the beginning of what came to be called, right, the American experiment, I think there was a real concerted effort or idea about sort of rationalizing the map and improving upon what had been done in the old world. And one of the ways in which Americans and planners uh, sought to do that was by doing away with the old British custom of having a street, you know, change its name every block, um, Anyone who's been to England or tried to navigate London, you know, knows that that's still the case. That you go there, and it's incredibly confusing because every block, you know, a, a street will change its name. Um, and so, in the U.S. and in, in New York specifically, right, there was this moment in the early 1800s of not only getting rid of these English street names, but also trying to say, okay, we, now we don't live in Broadway, which is what the English would say—that they live in a particular street that we live on Broadway, that we live on this thing, this street that is like a river. It sort of continues block after block. And that's a way that we uh, conceive of streets and a place now in New York. And I think that that's a, in fascinating ways, a kind of um, 
a kind of result of this effort to de-anglicize, if you like, or to make less British the map of New York. That's really interesting. Did you come across any stories about place names that under examination turn out to be absolutely false or misleading in some deep way? Yeah, you know, there, there are many of those. I mean, one um, that I'm sure you're, you're familiar with is, is Manhattan Borough historian. The, um, the story behind Wall Street is an interesting one where uh, if you go on the Internet and, <laughs> and sort of Google where's, you know, where does Wall Street come from, any number of websites will say, oh, well, the Dutch had this street, De Wall Strat, and, and clearly that's where Wall Street came from. Um, but the truth is actually that there was a De Wall Strat in New Amsterdam, um, but that uh, what that meant in, in, in Dutch at that time was it was the street, the Wharf Street, it was sort of by the water. Um, and so Wall Street actually comes about sort of a little later when the English take over uh, in 1664, Right. The Dutch had created a, a wall, a sort of palisade uh, at the northern edge of what was then New Amsterdam uh, and then taken over, of course, by the English. Um, and so the English took to calling that street Wall Street, right, in English, um, because there was this palisade that did date from Dutch days from a few years before um, the English uh, took over. But in any case, there's so many kind of convoluted and stories like that where Sometimes the, the sort of stories are, are too far back or too too complex to kind of get to the bottom of. Um, and I think certainly in the old world, the so-called old world in Europe or, or any other of the continents that uh, have histories that reach back um, much further than the several hundred years that New York as a city does, right? It's often hard to get to the bottom of, of, of place names in this way. But in New York and in the new world, in general, I think uh, one of the things is that you can, in many instances at least, sort of get to uh, the true story by relying on, you know, the, the scholarship and, and all the great work that people have done um, to uncover the, the story of New York over the last several centuries. Um, and so that is a, is a striking fact about studying place names here. Um, but Wall Street is, is, uh, is one in particular that I think is, has provoked a great deal of confusion. One of the pieces in your book that I liked a lot was your discussion of New York's practice of giving streets honorary names. How did this practice come to be and how do you think we should understand it? Yes, well, it's a, that's one of the things I think that's absolutely distinctive about New York um, as compared to other American cities. Uh, I can't speak to, to cities around the world, but certainly in the U.S., most cities make it quite difficult to change the name of a, of a street once it's once it's on the map um, or to give it an honorary second name. And that was the case in New York until uh, a few decades ago that certainly, of course, the, the story of street names includes uh, many moments um, that not that there were none of uh, the powers that be or mayors or politicians uh, wanting to honor uh, people. You know, you have you know, Cabrini Avenue up in up in Washington Heights that's uh, named after Mother Cabrini, of course, was sort of added to the map after she was, uh, after her beatification, beatification in 1938. Uh, and then you have, for example, Avenue of the Americas, right? Mayor LaGuardia in the 40s uh, wanted to kind of give Sixth Avenue a boost and, and sort of give it some new prestige to stand up to Fifth Avenue and, and make it a new kind of destination. And 
push through this thing. We're going to rename it Avenue of the Americas. And of course, that's a story where it didn't really stick. People didn't want to call Sixth Avenue Avenue of the Americas. And eventually, after a few decades, the city relented. And now it's officially Sixth Avenue and Avenue of the Americas. Um, In any case, so there are stories like that. But the real moment when honorary second names kind of exploded in New York is uh, in, so in the 1990s, a new, a new law was passed, a local law uh, that allowed city council to add these honorary second names um, in a much more kind of streamlined way um, that didn't require the official city map, the cartographers who right keep or kept the map, at least on these big, huge sheets of mylar, right, to actually go in and change the name. Um, it was this way, I think, as its critics say, to sort of give local politicians a way to sort of honor those they wanted to honor without permanently changing the map of the city. And for some years in the 1990s, there was, you know, a dozen or two of these would go in, local local heroes or ball players or, or, or activists or, you know, uh, local local heroes of all kinds, musicians, whatever. Um, but then the real kind of explosion happens after 2001, after 9-11. Uh, many uh, city council people, um, because of the traumas of that day and the ways in which, right, New Yorkers, I think, wanted to mark and remember those who'd lost their lives on 9-11. There was a real, there's hundreds and hundreds, many of the people who lost their lives that day, first responders and otherwise, um, became, uh, you know, honored uh, on New York's streets, if not on its map, with these sort of honorary second names for for street corners and so on. And since that time, um, you know, over the last 20 years, essentially, now the city council, something like, I forget the exact statistic, but it's like a third of the laws that are passed every year, uh, something along those lines, right, are these honorary names of sort of adding... um, street signs to uh, the neighborhoods of the city that, that honor uh, whoever uh, the local local city council people and, and, and their constituents uh, want to see honored. Um, many times that's sort of in, in certain enclaves, right? You have in a story, you have many streets that honor Greek Americans or Greek American radio stations, for example. And in Washington Heights, you have many Dominican um, heroes and sort of figures from history honored. Um, and on and on, so that you see this all over the city. Um, some people love it, some people hate it. I, I tend to, I tend to enjoy it deeply when walking around. You see these street signs, and I'm, I'm given to, to wanting to know who they honor, and sort of wanting to understand these deep local histories that are inscribed on, on the city streets uh, with these signs. Um, but some people think it's a bit much, so I. Uh, I remain agnostic about that question, but it is a wonderful and distinctive uh, thing about uh, New York street names. That's for sure. I saw that you drew on the research of, of one of our most dedicated locus historians, Gilbert Tauber. Can you tell us what he did and, and how it was useful to you? Absolutely. Well, Gilbert Tauber is a, is a treasure, as, as you know. Um, and I was actually, I think, led to him by by. Your predecessor is Manhattan Borough historian, Michael Michione, uh, who I think played a real key role, actually, in, in Gil Tauber, uh, sort of doing the work that he's done. He, Mr. Tauber, is a, he's a, a retired city planner, worked for decades for the city and the state, um, you know, was immersed in 
the kind of map and, and making of New York in that sense. But he's kind of spent his retirement uh, compiling a wonderful website called oldstreets.com. Um, and essentially, it's a website, it's a compendium initially uh, of all streets in New York that were once on its map and no longer are. Um, and he, you know, has been immersed in deep historical research uh, to kind of compile this list uh, from atlases and, and scholarly accounts from the 19th century and so on. Um, so that's one one sort of thing that, that he's done. But the other thing is this sort of, he is the only person who's actually taken the trouble to do a comprehensive list of these honorary street names. And I think part of, of how that happened, and now there are a couple thousand of them, right, um, is that someone, I believe a, a woman in the East Village, uh, saw a new street sign go up near, it wasn't Joey Ramone Place. People know who, who Joey Ramone is. That's, incidentally, that's the most stolen street <laughs> sign in New York, as I understand. Uh, Joey <laughs> Ramone Place. Um, but this was a, a you know rather more anonymous one. I think Frida Zane's Way, if I'm getting the name right. It's a... Uh, down in it's East Sixth Street, East Fifth Street, somewhere around there. Uh, in any case, uh, this woman contacted the borough historian to say, you know, who is this person? Why are they honored on my block? Um, and he, I think, had the, you know, he was able to look it up. She was the the leader of uh, uh, an active, a leading activist group for sort of a disability rights or, or pushing for the the rights of the differently abled. Um, and so he was able to give her an answer, but. He was astonished to realize that these honorary streets have been going in with sort of increasing numbers for the last 30 years or so, but there's no sort of comprehensive list that the city had kept about sort of why um, they existed, who the honorees were in every case. And essentially, he let um, Gilbert Tauber know about this, and and Gil, as a kind of great lover of of New York and a great lover of its history and, and a and a real public servant, I think it's fair to say, um, took it upon himself to essentially compile this list from the minutes of city council meetings, from um, other sources he could garner to let us know, you know, who are these people who are who are honored, right? And, and on his website, and I drew on it, had great, great fun, um, you know, looking through that list to sort of see the Everyone from, you know, ice cream vendors, Chubby Campanella out in Bay Ridge, beloved ice cream vendor has a street, you know, <laughs> Betty Lou Treza, if I'm getting her name right, you know, a, a star in the in the Women's Professional Baseball League in the 40s, right, um, up in Williamsburg. Anyway, those are two of thousands. But, you know, all these wonderful stories that are compiled there. And I think that um, it's a great service he's he's provided. And I sort of absolutely drew on his work. Um in invaluable ways to kind of do, do the account in that chapter of my book on, on honorary streets. So everyone should, you know, give thanks to, and, and check out his website if you're interested in this stuff. I was fascinated to read how you saw how different boroughs seem to have different tendencies in who they honor in yeah. street namings. Could you say more yeah, about that? Absolutely. I mean, I, I had fun and maybe went off the deep end with that sort of looking, Oh, who has the most, you know, honor name for Frank. And I said, Oh, Queens has the most Franks, for example. Whether that tells us anything useful, I don't know. But um but no, there's there's our other sort of more meaningful um distinctions, I think, that uh it's not surprising, for example, that you know, Manhattan of course has uh 
has a lot of celebrities, you know, just because so many celebrities, stars of stage and screen have, have obviously lived in Manhattan. So there, there are many of those, those performers who are honored. Um, Staten Island, I think has a, has a, a plethora of, of first responders of, of, uh, of policemen and, 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 uh, and firemen who, uh, either, you know, died on 9-11 or, or in the line of duty in other ways. And of course, that speaks to the ways in which those, um, you know, public employees have, have lived in great numbers in Staten Island for a long time. Uh, but it's also fascinating to me to learn that, you know, certain ethnic communities have been very into this sort of idea of honorary names, uh, and some haven't. You know, I, I mentioned earlier um, the Dominican... Uh, sort of presence in in Upper Manhattan in Washington Heights and of course in the Bronx as well Puerto Rican too but it's amazing up up in that part of Manhattan you know you have it seems like every corner uh, or every other corner is named for a great uh, you know figure in Dominican history for example um, and the Mirabel sisters or or uh, or any other uh, you know number of figures um, from the history of, of, of that island nation in the Caribbean. Uh, but it's interesting to look at, for example, in Chinatown, um, there's only a couple of honorary streets, uh, in Manhattan, Chinatown, that is the city of course has, has several Chinatowns now, but it's interesting that, um, that members of that community haven't been as drawn to sort of marking their presence or history in that way. Um, whereas many others. And I, I think, it's more common that, that groups have sort of gotten into this idea. Um, you know, we have a, a little Haiti street sign out in Flatbush now. There's a, a Mount Everest way in Jackson Heights, Queens, you know, to mark the presence of, of the new immigrant community from Nepal. Um, there are many, many of these street names, uh, these honorary street names across the, across the city. But I was really interested to find the ways in which some ethnic communities seem to be very into sort of gaining that kind of recognition and some, some couldn't care less. And that's, uh, that's of course the prerogative of, of those communities. How does New York city's real estate business affect its place names? Yes. Well, that's a, that of course, perhaps not surprisingly given the, the price of real estate in this, in this place and the, and the sort of insanity of, of the, of the wealth and resources that are sort of bound up in real estate development here. Um, that uh, real estate and real estate developers have played a huge role in sort of naming and describing neighborhoods, especially over the last uh, several decades as, as places that were once, you know, immigrant or middle-class neighborhoods have become gentrified and become uh, commodities in and of themselves. Um, of course, that's the case all across, all across Brooklyn, right? Um, many parts of Manhattan, it's happening to Queens, less so in the Bronx. Those stories are less common still, but but obviously sort of happening all the time. And I think one of the sort of notable trends there is that when you have kind of developers who are, you know, have a vested interest in, in selling a neighborhood and sort of uh, marketing its charms or its virtues, um, then you have these new coinages. And the first couple that became uh, kind of iconic in this way, I think, were not actually coined by real estate people, but by community members. I'm invoking Soho, right, for south of Houston Street, and then Tribeca for the triangle uh, below Canal Street. Um, these date from the 60s and 70s, but very quickly kind of became a kind of tag and a way to, to sell real estate. And I think they sort of started the trend that's now a, a kind of out of control, if you ask me, where you have, you know, now you have 
not only no Lita for North of Little Italy, you have Nomad north of Madison Square Park. You have Dumbo right down under the Manhattan Bridge. You have uh, you have Bolpaca, which is real estate problems. I I don't I've never heard anyone actually say that, but it's for Borum Borum Hill, uh, Carroll Gardens, Cobble Hill, right in Brooklyn, um, the sort of heart of so-called brownstone Brooklyn. These you know incredibly valuable real estate now. Um, and a few years ago, there's some real estate people tried to rebrand the South Bronx as Sobro. Uh, thank God that didn't take, but they're they're trying. Um, so this this is a trend that's really um, no that has taken off, and it's about um, yeah, it's about the sort of ways in which real estate and money from real estate you know drives the city economy in all kinds of ways, um, and and so it's inevitably had a role in 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 naming place and, and, and changing names of, of neighborhoods. You know, and yet, as you, as you point out so well, this also happens from the bottom up. There's a quote in the book that I really like about how the city's people pulling meaning from the grid have always had a way of making places and naming them for themselves. What are some good examples of that from the bottom up? Yeah, absolutely. No, I'm, I'm so glad you, you sort of call attention to that. Um, because it's one of the things that I, I've always been most um, interested in and sort of uh, inspired by, the ways in which people make place their own and create meaning, um, not only from numbered streets, but from from whatever else. Uh, you know, I think about, for example, on the Lower East Side, right? The Lower East Side, uh, kind of uh, unremarkable place name, you know, describing the Lower East Side of Manhattan, obviously. Um, but took on all kinds of meanings down the years, the decades and the centuries as a, an immigrant enclave, as a first a German one, then a Jewish one. And, and later on, right, the Puerto Rican residents of the Lower East Side, you know, have taken to calling it Loisida. And uh, it's this wonderful mm-hmm. kind of, you know, Spanglish riff on this English place named Lower East Side. And now it's on it's on street signs on Avenue C, Loisida, right? Um and I think that you mm-hmm. see that uh, all over the place. And I, I love um, another example that, that's very interesting to me is in, in Harlem that um, speak of sort of pulling meaning from the grid, right? 125th Street um, is so iconic now of uh, African-American history and, and freedom and culture and pride uh, that it's a striking example of how when sometimes these sort of place na- honorary place names or name changes that are meant to kind of uh, hail a certain history uh, can sometimes be almost redundant. Um, and what I'm invoking there is that 125th Street is also officially called, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, Boulevard. Uh, New York, like many cities and towns across the country, you know, has a, a street named for Dr. King. But it's interesting on 125th Street because very few people, you know, use that name for 125th Street. And I think that's because 125th Street was already, you know, symbolic of many of the values that that new name was supposed to to signify. Um, and I think that that's a fascinating example of the ways in which people can can create these meanings just based on um based on numbers uh, or based on these names and, and, and create something uh, from them that has lasting meaning. You write towards the very end of your book, if landscape is history made visible, the names we call its places are the words we use to forge maps of meaning in the city. What are some of the larger currents of meaning about the city's past and present that, that you'd like to see readers take away from your book? 
Yeah, it's a great question and um, something that I am certainly thinking about all the time and, and was thinking about as I was writing this book. And one of the things that happened uh, that's worth mentioning, I think, as I was working on this book, of course, the the pandemic was was raging as I, as I finished it last summer, um, which, of course, changed and traumatized the city in all kinds of ways, but also the the demonstrations for racial justice, you know, that um, sort of grouped under the heading Black Lives Matter, but um, articulating all kinds of sort of new reckonings with history and the history of racism in, in this country and, and in New York. And it was so striking to me to sort of, as I was finishing the book, see literally people in the street, you know, chanting, say their names, talking about the, the sort of victims of, of, of violence who, who demonstrators wanted to remember. And <clears throat> that sort of set of, of public concerns or demonstrations that, um, you know, have been so impactful, I think, in our public sphere and in our politics has also kind of occasioned a new look at, at place names that are honoring uh, figures from history who we may not be proud of or who we need to confront, um, namely uh, slave owners and others who are involved in, you know, less than slave, savory aspects of our, of our history. And to me, as someone who cares about place names and cares about uh, the ways in which we can change their meaning across time. Um, I'm not someone who, who goes around saying that, you know, every sort of place name honoring someone from the past who we don't feel great about should be changed necessarily. Though I do think those are absolutely vital and important conversations to have. Um, many of the sort of new monuments that are going up and the name changes that are happening, I think are are powerful sort of symbols and ways to reckon with the past that we all need to reckon with. Um, but I think that, you know, it couldn't be a, a better time in a sense um, to be trying to think in a deep and sophisticated way about, you know, not only where place names come from, but how we attach meaning to them, how we can change their meanings, what they signify about our values. And so I, uh, I don't think this book offers a kind of, you know, prescriptive answer to all those all those deep questions, but I do hope that it, you know, contributes to having a more sophisticated conversation about, about place names and, and why they matter and how we should care for them and care about them. What are the landmarks on your own mental map of New York city? Oh gosh. Um, you know, it's, it's funny. I think that we, we started this conversation by talking about, you know, nonstop metropolis, this atlas of the city that I that I worked on, and and of course one of the guiding ideas of that of that project, and I think of this project too, is that all of us who who live in the city and and inhabit it, you know, have our own maps of the city, our own landmarks, and, and I think that that's one of the wonderful things about uh, being a New Yorker is that we all have those places. Um, that's all to <laughs> to stall for a moment before answering your question. Um, but I think those are those are important things to me, and I think that you know the places that I've I've lived and have particular memories. Um, you know, the Upper West Side, uh, certain playgrounds where I've gone with my with my toddler have deep sort of meaning for me now. The Hippo Playground in Riverside Park and Safari Playground in Central Park. Um, other places I have a deep love for for Red Hook, Brooklyn, um, where I've done a lot of a lot of work and, and love the kind of maritime feel of that place. I have deep attachments to Greenwich Village. I teach I teach at NYU and, and um, spend my, my working days sort of 
wandering the village or, or, or contemplating New York from by Washington Square Park. Um, so there are any number of places that, that hold memories for me and, and, uh, and, and hopefully hold, hold good future experiences. But, um, but these are, these are just a few of those that, uh, that I'm attached to. I will say this though, Rob, that you mentioned at the outset to Dead Horse Bay, uh, <laughs> is a place I love not only because it has a, a, a colorful, a colorful uh, place name um, comes from right. This is a this is a place down on 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 Jamaica Bay. Uh, that it was a place where horses were rendered. You know, and uh, which is to say, all the horses that pulled carts in the city once upon a time went to be turned into glue and fertilizer and so on. So it stunk. It was a, a pretty pretty terrible place once upon a time. But now it's this it's this quite wonderful kind of sanctuary to me anyway of going to going to this place that feels so sort of full of nature in the midst of the city, uh, but also has the layers, the literal layers of the detritus of the garbage dumps that were there. There's a place called Glass Bottle Beach on Dead Horse Bay, which uh, you go there and as the tide goes in and out, you see all this extraordinary kind of sea glass and layers of old bottles that are there from, from you know a century ago. And it's hard to beat the kind of poetry of, you know, Glass Bottle Beach, Dead Horse Bay as a place to go and, you know, contemplate the past and present and future of the city. And one of the joys of this book was just in part like looking, I hadn't been to Dead Horse Bay before I, you know, started researching this book. And I was, you know, many of the most colorful place names, I was like, oh, I got to go there. I got to go check that place out. And, um, <laughs> and of course, often when you do that, you, you discover a, a really wonderful, wonderful set of things in the present too. You know, it's not just in the past. What are you working on next? Oh, don't ask me that. Uh, good question. I'm uh, I various things. I'm going to dodge that question. Uh, magazine pieces and and a maybe a book about borders and maybe a book about cults and who knows. But I'm uh, I'm just uh, enjoying talking about place names and, and place right now. Well, that all sounds really interesting, and I look forward to seeing what you do next. Well, thank you so much, Rob. It's a real delight to talk to you whose work I've admired and learned from. And thank you for having me on. It's a real pleasure. Josh, thanks for being with us today for the New Books Network.